Welcome to the Lake Forest Podcast, a podcast about the lovely city of Lake Forest, featuring topics like local news, sports, music, people, food, and history. My name is Pete, and I'm joined with my co-host, Lake Forest history legend, Arthur Miller, and his art class. Oh, this is going to be a good show, guys. But first, we got to pay some bills, Art. Dakota Insurance Group. They've got your back. Why? Because that's what friends are for. Dakota Insurance Group handles all your residential and commercial insurance needs. Get a quote now at dakotainsurancegroup.com. Okay, one of the goals of the podcast is for our listeners to learn just a little bit more about Lake Forest. And who better to teach us than Lake Forest's own Arthur Miller? Okay, everybody, take your seats, fold your hands, put them on top of the desk. Our class is about to begin. Art, how you been, buddy? I'm fine. I've been busy like you, um, yeah. but uh, I've been looking forward to this uh, podcast because I'm wanted to to jump in on some of it. This is only tangentially political, but yeah, yeah, it's yeah. background for a lot of people, and people get them. Them. I think there's a lot of confusion. As I was, uh, as I'm, I think you should. You can kind of see that I'm in the middle on a lot of the things that happen. Um, From being retired from Lake Forest College's library, I'm probably more conservative than many people that are teaching today, younger people that are teaching today. And from the point of view of the town, I'm probably more um, liberal than some of the people in town, um, just because of different experience, different kinds of exposure. Um, so I've been in Lake Forest for um, 49 years, basically. Yeah. Uh, about half of the way through that in the mid-90s, partly with the help of another person here in town, Shirley McDonald Paddock, um, yeah. I got interested in some of the old support community that lived in Lake Forest. Now there's not many people who, we all have lots of people who help us in Lake Forest, um, and they mostly come from outside of town, but in yeah. the early days, they actually lived on the estates or near the estates, um, near the places that they worked. There were, um, neighborhoods for different groups. I lived on until about a year ago, or I lived in, in the neighborhood South of Lake Forest College, which was built for the help basically in the early yeah. 1900s when the kids didn't want to live on estates anymore because they needed to get to the inner urban train to take them to high school in which used to be down in Highland Park and then later it was up where it is now but the little inner urban train rattled up and down the parallel to the northwestern track so little service community neighborhoods grew up the one that I lived in uh, which was called Codfish Town because there actually were houses that smelled of fish in the basement um, when people bought them that neighborhood had an Irish community, it had, it had a German community, it had Scottish community, it had a Scandinavian community, and it had an Italian representation, a couple clans of Italians, I said Scots, and African-Americans. There was the first earliest African-American community in town was near the corner of Washington Road, and um, Illinois Road, southwest of the business district. I'm sorry, southeast of the business district, uh, just kind of south of the campus. 
and it uh, serviced some of the people who lived on estates and things like that. It went way back. The houses uh, probably were built right after um, the Civil War. The first African-Americans that came through were here at the same time that uh, people were here for the, uh, that just were settling from the Chicago group. The East Lake Forest was settled by Presbyterians from in the city. They were anti-slavery. They were, they were anti-slavery, but moderate, like Lincoln. They didn't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. They didn't want to start a war. They, but they did want to go west really badly. They wanted to go west. They wanted to build a railroad to the Pacific Ocean. And they couldn't do it because if you went through, you couldn't go through Kansas and Nebraska because there was a war over free slave, free or slave states. And it was pretty active. So they wanted to get that issue settled. They wanted to keep Chicago anti-slavery. Irish were less inclined. They were more worried about a whole bunch of free labor show, or cheap labor showing up in Chicago. Former slaves, they thought that'd be bad for business because most of them had been thrown off of the farms and they didn't have many city skills either. The Germans were highly skilled industrial workers. They were kind of at the top of the pecking order for immigrants. And they, um, they were doing really well. Um, however, the Irish and the Germans both liked uh, alcohol. The Presbyterians, which were New England and Scots, were teetotalers. So the, uh, the Presbyterians decided they didn't want to get into an argument and drive the Germans to unite with the Irish so that they would vote against um, anti-slavery or they would support slavery. They wanted them to stay, the Germans to stay friendly with the anti-slavery people. So they said, fine, we'll take our dollies and go home. We'll, we'll move up on the North Shore. Or the first, the Methodists went to Evanston. The Presbyterians came further up here and settled in 1850. 859, 60, 61. They, by 61, they had a pretty good-sized little village here. They're, as soon as we have records of, of people spending time up here, uh, 1858, we have records of them having African-Americans along. Everybody who was rich in Chicago, they were new money. They had grown up on farms in um, New England or New York State or downstate Illinois of, of that kind of same background of New Englanders. They live very simply. And so they ended up coming to the city when, it, when they got paid, instead of spending their money and especially going to saloons or other places that were worse, ended, they, they, they stuck it into the bank. And when they had a little bit of money, they bought a piece of land somewhere downtown. And they, they, were, they, they quickly became rich as a result. They were smart. They knew where to buy land. And they became wealthy in 20 years or so. So even though, and they had lived very simply in order to accumulate wealth as they worked in different kinds of jobs, they had lived very simply still. So when they finally got enough money to build a fancy house out in Lake Forest where nobody would be jealous of them, they built these beautiful homes but they didn't really know how to live like rich people. The interesting thing about a lot of the people coming from the South was they knew how to take care of rich people. 
the plantation, people had worked on plantation homes and stuff. They didn't take care of their horses, their clothes, their cooking, kids, their animals. They knew everything about what rich people needed and their gardens, everything. So they were very useful to them. So they were happy. So some of them came through, just stayed and kind of blended into the woodwork. If you've ever looked at the Lake Forest plan, it's a bunch of winding roads. They turn around on each other. You can get lost very easily. So if when you came to town and you said you wanted to be pointed toward um, Fred Jones's house, um, they would say, well, lots of luck. You would have to hire a livery driver who would take you there. The livery driver probably would be African-American, but they were watching in the early days, they were watching for slave catchers. Uh, there were no addresses of Lake Forest houses published until well into the 20th century. It was just an old tradition. If you didn't need to, if you didn't know where you were going, you didn't need to know where you're going. It was the opposite of the city with a city directory, a grid, and you can figure out where every Tom, Dick, and Harry and his mother lived. In Lake Forest, you had no clue. Uh, and some of that really got started over both them not wanting to people to be jealous of them and also not wanting to have somebody looking to see what kind of servants they had and if any of them belonged in Arkansas. They were very active in the Underground Railroad, both wholesale and retail. Retail was in town. There were a few stops here. Um, one was just to the west of the Presbyterian Church, where there's a big white house now, 550 East Deer Path. But they were also bigger in wholesale. One of the early visitors to Lake Forest was Charles Dyer. He was involved with the Burlington Railroad. And they were trying to suck the lifeblood out of the South by siphoning off their African-Americans, moving them north and into Canada. So uh, one, the person who lived in that big white house, it's a replacement house now, but the garage that's behind it in the, on church property now, that is actually still from 1859. It was the original garage. He owned a, a lumber yard up near the Michigan Upper Peninsula border in Wisconsin, right around in there. And he would run a ship up the lakes back and forth. It was kind of like with trafficking drugs today. If they caught you with contraband, they could seize your ship. So the captain had to not know what was going on. So the, the people on the Underground Railroad, he would look the other way. And they would sneak people onto the boat. Then, after that was over with, they would the guy would take off. They would go up to um, an island in in between Washington Island and Door County in Green Bay. And because his ship was going in a different direction than they were going in, they'd all have to jump off and wait for another ship to come by to take them to Detroit. The Detroit ship would go would sort of drift close to the Canadian part, never seeing anybody, and then. They could jump off when they got close to the shore on the Canadian side. Then he would go into Detroit. So it was pretty well organized. It was wholesale. Sure enough, as soon as the Civil War was over, a lot of people came back to Lake Forest and settled here. People who'd passed through on the Underground Railroad, there were three or four different stops. Um, the, the census for um, in that same neighborhood I was mentioning, in that neighborhood, the census for 1870 it asked them, they were, it was called, they were listed as colored people. 
and they were listed. Um, they asked him where they had been, where they came from before they came to Lake Forest. And they all said Canada. So they had come back uh, pretty much. Now, some then there came in waves after that. After the Chicago fire, one of the important uh, livery drivers from 1872 to 1890 was Samuel Dent. Uh, he was a real town. Everybody knew him and he knew everybody. He's the one who he was kind of the gatekeeper on the town from the train station. He came in 1872. Um, then in 1880s, um, a new president came to Lake Forest College and brought a group of, or just a couple. Um, they were named Matthews, Octavia and Julian Matthews. Julian took care of the horses for this new president. He'd come from Kentucky and Octavia cooked for him. Well, he was only there about six years or something. They liked it here. So when he left, they just went over to by the train station. They called it the depot back then on the west side and set up a business. And they had a, a cluster of little businesses. They had a livery stable. They had a restaurant. They had special party rooms for the college kids. Uh, lots of stuff going on. They're a major business. So you had Samuel Dent with his own business. You had these Matthews people with their business. So there were some African-Americans doing well here. So the, there really were four periods that we can mention about the stages of African-American history here. That was kind of the first one. And that flourished up until about 1890, early 1890s. Then after that, there was the 1896 Plessy versus Ferguson decision that kind of capped the end of the period. This, the next generation of people in Lake For in Chicago and Lake Forest, and especially as they started coming out here for golf and everything, they were more uh, class conscious. They set were more like they were more separating the differences between classes. And so where the earlier they'd been very friendly, Samuel Dent started his business with a loan from a college faculty member, by the way. They, things started to change and they, they were different and up until World War II. There were three different waves from the 1890s to about the 1920s when there were black neighborhoods that were, um, as we used to say in Chicago in the 60s, urban renewaled out. Does that make sense? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. They would take, the, the buildings weren't very nice. It was kind of de degraded real estate stock. So they would come in and they would clear it out. So the first one was 1892-93 when they built the Lake Forest, a new Lake Forest Academy campus uh, south of the other campuses. Uh, that was, um, and there was, a, I think they must have been the very first places that people had built when they came back in 1865. And after there was a little church by or a Sunday school by 1866 and a church by 1870. So the earliest houses probably, and they were ready to go. And they built other ones in the neighborhood after that also. So the second one was 1912. The Matthewses who had a big business um, were doing pretty well, but they were right smack dab west of the train station and so when they, when the estate owners, the estate owners wanted to do Market Square and redevelop that area. First thing they did was bought out Mr. Matthews and the other owners. Matthews moved his business to the corner of Illinois and Washington, built a big barn there that was um, his livery stable, and he could run things out of there. 
but he he definitely was not part of the the central business district anymore where he'd been centrally prominent. So the third one was in the 20s. And in that case, uh, this I know from the from seeing at earlier time the Griffith Grant and Lackey Real Estate Company here in town, their archives showed that um, Mr. Griffith had been involved in putting together the land for a black neighborhood that was at about Illinois and Bank Lane and Oakwood, uh, now the property of the Deer Path Inn. Yeah. And so the, the rich people would get off the train. They'd gotten rid of Matthews and his smelly horses and horse flies. And they got over the, toward that way. And then they ran into another little shanty town. So they wanted to buy that up. But by this time, the African-Americans were more savvy about how to hold on, you know, how to deal with the um, wealthy class. Right, so right. at one point, because that's near the Catholic Church, too, and they said, well, we're thinking of selling to the Catholic Church. We're not going to sell to you. And then later they said, if you don't meet our price, we'll sell to the Catholic Church. Didn't make the uh, Protestant golf players any happier. So uh, they were able to get a good price for their land anyway. And but but this was kind of whittling down the spaces that were available. But there were there was there was another there were two really strong African American American communities. One where I was talking about another one up at around Sheridan and Spruce Avenue um, on the north side of the original 1856. Uh, 57 Lake Forest plan. So um, they were still there. People they were building new houses in the 20s there and everything. So it was pretty good. There was a transitional period from about 19, from the 18, well, let's say from around the end of World War II until the 1960s. And there were made a few major events there. By 1948, Lake Forest College was finally allowing in some black students. They were actually recruiting some good black students. That was 1948. By 1955, one of them, um, the notable one that retired was Glenette Tilly Turner. Her father, uh, Mr. Tilly was a, was a civil rights leader in the 50s and 60s. Um, and she became a school teacher, but she became very interested in the Underground Railroad. And is and wrote the history of the Underground Railroad in Illinois, um, so she was she's been very active and knows things around town. Um, and then by 1957, finally, after this uh, separate but equal law for a long time, 1957, the Deer Path Theater, which is no longer there, but it, there's a, still a marquee on Deer Path Avenue uh, across from Northern Trust. You'll see. I think there's still a marquee. Maybe it's gone. But there was a theater there, big movie theater. African-Americans sat in the balcony. Uh, 1957, they no longer had to just sit in the balcony. They could sit in the balcony if they wanted to, but they could also sit on the main floor. So that was kind of a transitional period. Things were starting to change. Uh, the fourth period of this is really starts in the 60s as the civil rights movement kind of moves north that we've had the the bus uh, the lunch counter sit-ins and the bus sit-ins yeah. in the south and everything like that. It's the Kennedy administration. So 1962, Lake Forest College adopts a policy that they should have as many African American students as there as they are the popula the percentage of the population in the in the country, which is like maybe 
12, I don't know, 12 or 15%, something like that. So they would try to have the same amount of student body as that. That was their goal. So they started recruiting and bringing people from Chicago when they can get them that were prepared. And Memphis, Tennessee was the big place they were coming from. By 1964, they hired their first African-American faculty member, uh, a guy named Nate Huggins. Now, the trouble was there weren't that many black people around and he was a very good historian, very sharp, came from Harvard and he got hired away in about 15 minutes. So he's only been two years, but he had gone and he ended up being um, head of the African-American history program at Harvard himself eventually. Um, but he cut his teeth out here in Lake Forest. Uh, and so then they started having several other ones. It wasn't until the seventies that the first real career African-American faculty member was here, Clayton Gray, and he retired, he came and then he retired uh, as, an, as, as a Lake Forest College faculty member. Um, the, the 1980s certainly saw the arrival of Hispanics coming to colleges and coming into high schools here and also Muslims. And so I remember being in the library and after orientation of new faculty, there was a very bright looking young woman who asked me where the Lake Forest College Library's Muslim and Arabic book collection was. And I said, actually the Presbyterians at Lake Forest College just discovered the Catholics about 1950s. <laughs> but if you pick out books, we'll buy them. You know? <laughs> So, I mean, it, it's been a broadening experience. And of course, yeah. the colleges are apt to be more liberal about that. And by the 1990s, Ragdale Foundation in town that has a writing program, writing has writers in residence, uh, artists in residence. It actually had a program bringing African novelists and writers and poets to Lake Forest. Uh, we got grant money and stuff to be writers here. So the two high schools, Woodlands, and Lake Forest Academy, if you look at them in the 21st century, it, what's, there's really very substantial um, diversity, what you call now diversity, Hispanic students, Asian students, and that could mean South Asian or East Asian, and African-American students. I was at something at Lake Forest Academy a couple of years ago, and you know, perhaps the president of the class, something like that, was was an African-American woman, very sharp gal. Um, so what's good about this for these, and these are all private institutions. These are not public schools. They are, which really means they're hybrids because they do get sometimes money from other groups. Certainly the college is a hybrid with the financing coming from the federal government too. But the real philosophy is, is that not only are you giving them a chance to have an education, but the students who are not diverse get for maybe the first time they've ever had. And before they go out and get a job, they have a chance rubbing elbows with a more complex group of people to realize that everybody isn't like them. Everybody doesn't have the same background. Everybody doesn't have the same motivations and it doesn't mean they're not just as smart, but they're a little different and they need to learn. It's a good opportunity for them to learn. So, and, and then for the ones, I remember there's a, one of our like early, I said those eight, 1960s graduates, 
One of those 1960s first students who came went on to be an associate dean of the law school at um, Cornell. And she came to talk once. She said that when she arrived in the 60s, she came from Washington, D.C. She lived in Washington, D.C. her whole life. She thought most everybody was African-American. She had no idea that she'd go someplace where there were no African-Americans. It was culture shock, you know. So it works both ways. It's not just one way. My point with all this is, uh, it's an. I think that what's valuable is to explore the history. You don't have to go and look at Minneapolis, Minnesota, or people pulling statues down in Charlottesville to explore what some of the issues are. Um, I have a couple of books that I've done. Uh, The one that you said you had in your coffee table. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) That's got quite a bit. There's, for instance, Lake Forest hired. It's got a picture of a guy on a motorcycle from 1900. He was the first African-American policeman. So they weren't sending in a squad of guys to somebody's house and beating down the door at five o'clock in the morning. They would go, and this I had this from a former neighbor whose husband had been a policeman in Lake Forest. They, if they had a problem in the 30s, let's say, with a with a with a young African-American or something like that, or somebody was not quite on target for what they're supposed to yeah. be, they would go to the to Mr. Matthews, who was still the mayor of that section of town. Uh, they called him the mayor of the black town. He also, in that barn, ran kind of a speakeasy, et cetera, going on there. Um, they would go to him and say, look, um, Jim so-and-so seems to have some issues about his behavior. We don't want to get involved but would you please try to get him to not do some of this stuff? You know, it's causing trouble and we don't want to have any trouble. And then that would be taking care of it. Now, somehow little towns know how to handle these things. Then you have other towns where they don't seem to be as clear on how to handle them uh, tactfully and respectfully. So Lake Forest kind of pioneered respectful treatment between different groups and managed to avoid having any difficulties. Now, what happened was over time, the African-American community, their businesses weren't encouraged and they get gradually, the kids grew up um, by the, certainly by the sixties, they were getting grants to go to college. They'd go someplace else. They'd be in California. They'd be somewhere else. Um, just this last, uh, a woman almost 100 years old, I mean, just 15 minutes short of being 100 years old, passed away. And her family, I talked to them by telephone, but they live way somewhere else out, you know, no, nowhere near here. But, you know, the, the old time people have just about died off here. You know, when they talk, it's a question of why can't, the town gradually be more open to people who have made a lot of money. I mean, the people that come to Lake Forest usually just made a lot of money. So some of those are African-Americans and we've had them at the bears, you know, and stuff like that. And they've lived. Um, So we need more people for the high school needs probably to have, I'm not saying 500 black kids to arrive in buses or something like that, but I'm saying, If there were more people that weren't just like everybody else in Lake Forest right now, 
it would be a better educational experience. We do have South Asians. We have, I think, a few African-Americans, but not a sub- significant thing. Same problem in Winnetka, you know, a new Trier area. They don't have that as good of a blend to make it a good experience for their own kids. They don't realize the limitations of having your kids go out into the world, go to colleges where there's a lot of integration already, and then run into something they have no experience with. So, um, but our history show, there was integration in the schools here starting in 1860, the public schools, not the private schools then, but the public mm-hmm. schools. There was a, the first public school teacher in Lake Forest, 1860, was Roxana Beecher. Her aunt was Harriet Beecher Stowe, wrote Uncle Tom's Cabin. Yeah. Uh, and her father was more rabidly anti-slavery than Harriet Beecher Stowe. So she was here teaching everybody she could lay her hands on. They offered night school. There's no official record of that until 1864. And she left in 1863. But as soon as they had the proclamation for um, emancipation um, and everybody was legal, they started listing. We got so many African-Americans in the night school or colleagues, they call them, in the night school. And so that goes way back. It continued up into the 20th century, uh, continued. They were at the South School at that time. They were at a West School that's over by where City Hall is now. So there was integration, but it, it faded out um, by the 1960s, pretty much. I'm going to do one last thing. I'm going to plug my two yeah. books. I'm going to plug that one, uh, Lake Forest Estates, People and Culture, which right. has a good bit about that. And then a lot of individual African-Americans with, that are, have been influential in Lake Forest are covered in a 2015 um, Arcadia book called Legendary Locals of Lake Forest. Um, and it includes um, all kinds of people from hedge fund type people to, you know, whatever who are living out here or spending weekends out here anyway, all across the, the spectrum of people who live in Lake Forest. So those are a couple of books I've done that would help see more about what the broad range of people has been. I mean, Lovey Smith lived here. So there, there's a number of people who've been, been good. And so there, we have records of them. So I just mentioned this as background. I don't think you need to um, get in. I mean, I, I'm not in favor of trying to make kids that are born in the 21st century feel guilty about their sins of privilege and stuff like this. To me, that's, they're, they're too young to understand that, you know, and to some right. extent. But I think that for older kids in high school, knowing something about the history, knowing about this pattern of change, first, very friendly and supportive, certainly helping them escape and then being supportive of them, then kind of turning away from that, more of a backlash, then transitioning toward more um, support again, and then having um, the schools, the private schools, um, when Bear College was functioning, but then Lake Forest College and also uh, Woodlands Academy and Lake Forest Academy, that's something that the town can build on and use as a positive way to approach this rather than scaring kids about things that they didn't really have anything to do with and don't make any sense about, you know. But you can see the history of it, and it makes it more, it broadens, it's broadening to know about it. 
sounds to me like Lake Forest has always been pretty open-minded going to the integration in the 1800s to oh, yeah. the, ba the balcony, the theater balconies in 1948. I mean. Yeah. Um, I mean, they, they, they were trying to gradually, they started loosening up. Um, there'd been this movement toward more class consciousness in the country club era, but that wasn't just here. That was everywhere. Lake Forest uh, was probably less that way than some other places were. Uh, Lake Forest College stayed pretty egalitarian. Uh, it was, it stayed, some colleges went all male and just, and, and got rid of the scholarships and uh, Lake Forest stayed co-educational and stayed having a blend of scholarship students and non-scholarships and the same is true at the prep schools i think i'm going to try to get the uh college president on we'll see see if we can make that happen steve, steve scott yeah he'd be good yeah. he, well he's he's made a lot of efforts to keep it all going you know um sure. the there well one of the things that he did he had uh barack obama on campus in 2002 speaking before anybody knew of him you know, so, I mean, the, the college people are sort of ahead of the curve on a lot of stuff. Mm -hmm. <laughs> no question about it. And not that everybody's going to agree with them, but in a broadest sense, education is probably our best solution to some of our problems. Well, Art, I mean, you're more of a history guy than I am, but I know enough about history that if you don't study it, you're going to repeat it. Right. So you can't right. erase it. If you erase it, then you're just going to duplicate the same problems we had in the past right, right. so right. it's not right or it's wrong it's just we don't want to repeat it right and i think it's difficult to make while you can show positive images of for little kids in the books they read and stuff like that you can show positive images of african-americans and chinese and or asian and everybody i think that's a great idea but i think that trying to make them feel guilty because of white privilege or something that probably needs to wait until they're a bit older, you know, and yeah. they can put it more into perspective because they didn't really have anything to do with it. You know, the more that you, that we can give them some exposure that's non-threatening, that would be good. But we have to, I think soft pedal some of the heavier parts of what people would, might, some people might want to do. That's just a moderate opinion. That's a moderate. <laughs> All right, Art. Uh, another great art class. Thank you for listening. Thank you for making me smarter again, Art. I'm going to try to retain some of this. Mm. I'm try, I, I, my notes, I got pages and pages of notes here. <laughs> but uh, thanks for listening to the Lake Forest Podcast, Art Class Edition. Please give us five stars on Apple Podcasts. And smash that like button on Facebook, Instagram, and follow us on Twitter. Let us know what you like to hear about on the upcoming shows. Again, I'm Pete. That can be reached at Pete at LakeForestPodcast.com. The link will be in the podcast notes below. On behalf of my co-host, Arthur Miller, we thank you for listening. Our class is now over. Hear the bell. Cue the band.